This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, it's interesting. You know, in 2002, I was a, I was 17, I was 18. And I was someone who had my first car mm. and I had a little bit of money in my pocket for, and there's a type of freedom that I think comes with that, especially, you know, I grew up with not a lot of money and no way to self-determine in terms of how I spent my time or, um, you know, my options for entertainment. And I was still kind of too young to get into any real mischief outside of, you know, I was in the punk scenes, I was going to shows and whatever, whatever. And I was just kind of like a, a boring person. I was a boring teenager <laughs> for the most part. And I just loved going to movies. I still love going to the movies, but I loved, like really and truly loved the experience of going to the movies. Um, and so I was just taking in anything. Mm-hmm. This was perhaps in an era where, too, like if a movie is rated R, they might still check you at the door. Yeah. Now it doesn't matter. Now you could, like, you know, it's funny when I see these topics on, on Twitter or wherever, people are like, What's the most egregious or absurd meal you stuck into a movie theater? It is always from this era. It's always people telling stories from this era of like the '90s, early 2000s, or a little before. Because now you can sneak in, like you could. I mean, it's not even sneaking at this point. You could just bring a whole pizza. In. <laughs> but Brown Sugar was a movie I saw in theaters twice. Really? Uh, yeah, I saw it when it first came out. I went on a date to see it, and then. And I remember it was a first date or a second date because I was so overwhelmed and anxious and nervous mm-hmm. that I just did not really take in the movie. Yeah. And so there was a, I needed to go again the second time uh, so I could see it and really immerse myself in it without the kind of anxieties of the first date. Welcome to Open Forum. I'm Michael Denzel Smith. Sydney and Dre have loved hip hop ever since they saw Dougie Fresh, Slick Rick, and Dana Dane performing in the park. That love created a lifelong bond that, as adult professionals within the music industry, is being tested by hip hop's commercialization and the demands of the market to erase the essence of what Sydney and Dre first fell for. But it's not just the love of hip hop that is threatened, as both Sydney and Dre begin to realize that their friendship has always been much more. This week's film is Brown Sugar, and it was chosen by essayist and poet Hanif Abdurraqib, author of the bestseller Go Ahead in the Rain and the recently released A Little Devil in America. And so when, when that, that second time, what was your feeling? I loved it. And, I, you know, I still love it now. And I'm, I revisited it recently because I wrote a thing about love and basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, and it dawned on me that Sunal Lathan had been 
in two films in a similar era that revolved around this thing of lifelong friends becoming more than friends. Yeah. And that interested me. And I, you know, I think we'll maybe talk about it in, at length a bit later is I've been struggling with some frustration around this ever present trope of, you know, straight men and women cannot be friends. Yeah. Like that film trope that happens has happened across generations, across genres of film, uh, not just film, of course, but it is ever present in film and television everywhere. And I actually think why, what is interesting about a film like Brown Sugar and a film, um, you know, a film like Brown Sugar um, is kind of revolving around this idea of not, uh, like Love and Basketball, is revolving around this idea of not exactly men and women can't be friends, but it's actually delving into something much more interesting to me, which is a lifelong connection to someone Mm -hmm. who has seen you in many modes of your personhood and who has, through that seeing, fostered feelings that exist outside of the boundaries of friendship. Mm. And that is more interesting to me than the binary of like, those like bullshit, whatever that like bullshit Ashton Kutcher movie is, whatever the fuck, Um, where it's like you meet someone and try to be friends for a week and the next thing you know you're sleeping together, that kind of shit. Right. Brown Sugar is kind of delving into this deep and rich understanding of a person that comes, and I'm someone who has had friends, friendships that have spanned decades, and I know that there's a love for people who I've known in many modes through a long stretch of time, that is maybe just one rush of wind away from becoming a love that exists outside of the boundaries of what I imagine friendship to be. Or what I'm mostly saying is that I believe friendship in and of itself to be a romantic act, or romantic actions. Mm. Um, I believe in heavily romantic friendships. And because I believe in that, I can be seduced perhaps by a movie that relies on the depth and generosity of friendship kind of venturing into another realm. Yeah. I, because you're giving me something to think about that I hadn't really when I rewatched this, because it had been a long time since I'd seen it. And then when you chose it, I was like, all right, yeah, let me, let me revisit Brown Sugar. And I was frustrated at first by that exact trope, right? Like that it felt like, it almost saying there's an impossibility that Sydney and Dre, Sanaa, Lathan, and, and Tay Diggs' characters, the main characters here, could just maintain a friendship, right? Like that there that there's an inevitability, and uh, you know another character sort of says this, uh, you know, uh, Sydney's uh, love interest. Um, that you get men and women together, uh, presumably straight and presumably sh- presumably straight men, presumably straight women together, and you know, they're going to be there's going to be someone's going to want to take it to a sexual level. Someone's going to want it to be more than just a friendship. And there's a growing frustration. It's being like, well, why can't they just be friends? Why can't they have this bond through hip hop, uh, which is the central conceit here? 
and that just and they just be supportive of each other in their other romantic relationships and all of that why can't that be the case but i think you know when when you're talking like oh well what this movie is sort of getting at is less of uh they can't be friends but what a what a lasting love looks like in that these are two people that do change and they see each other through those changes and it's not something that romantic comedies usually take into account right. the fact that like you know you you have a romantic comedy you have your meet cute you have your obstacles and then you have your everlasting love at the end but what we don't follow is that relationship through people uh, growing in different directions, finding new passions, all of that. But these are two people that have had that lifelong connection, able to see each other through a bunch of different phases of life, and now real like have a realization that like that's what they want is someone who's able to be there for them in that way. And that's you know I think I mean now to be fair. I'm probably projecting more onto this flawed movie. I mean, it is a flawed film. <laughs> yes. Uh, I'm projecting more onto it than some would say it deserves. But I think the act of knowing someone for a lifetime is the obstacle. There is, there's no need mm-hmm. for like a built-in, the built-in obstacle that exists and hovers around so many romantic films. Because to know someone, to commit to the knowing of someone for more than I think five, ten years, that it's, it, uh, in and of itself is is an obstacle. Yeah, uh, for sure. And because if the knowing is really in depth and generous, undoubtedly you are then present with the person. And what I like about the relationship as it presents itself in Brown Sugar is that these two people, through their knowing of each other, are unafraid to unravel each other's bullshit. Which. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a reality to that kind of messiness in friendships that I, I am also fascinated by. I don't think that messiness only exists in the romantic space or in the romantic ecosystem. As a matter of fact, I think it is it's much it's much more required in sustained friendships for someone's knowing to propel them towards an honesty about what they know. Mm. Um, and so I love the way that was portrayed in the film. Did you feel anything? It was a mistake. The mistake, my ash. Marry your man. Dwayne is not my man. He's my friend. That's it. In the discussion period. Whatever. Ladies and gentlemen, please be seated. That's what they they then, in their separate love interests, sort of run back to. Uh, because they're not receiving it in the way that they they think that they deserve it or need it uh, from these other romantic relationships. It's like, here's the center. Here's the thing that's always holding me. And I'm like, I've in there, it's the experience of receiving exactly the kind of love that you need and then saying, well, I'm not getting that from these other relationships. Why would I then betray this one that is, you know, the the thing that, that I actually want? Yeah, I mean, one of the wildest scenes in the movie is when uh, <laughs> when Tate Diggs takes Sinalathan to to his divorce, essentially. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> he, like, drag- I mean, that obviously is one of the flaws of the film. Like, ain't nobody trying to, you know, 
I have friends I love deeper than anything. And if they were like, yo, come through, we're about to walk up on my partner in in public. Nah. I'd be like, listen, I'm going to sit this one out. Nah. <laughs> I wish you well, but, but I'm going to sit this one out. But I, I think that is also one of the hallmarks of the film because there's a moment where, like, Sonal Lathan's character is horrified mm-hmm. and then almost immediately kind of shifts to this this sadness. You know, like, witnessing that leads to a type of sadness and the desire to be a, a like a caretaker, which of course leads to the scene where they have their moment and then, you know, they they have the inevitable, you know, they're kissing by the bookshelf and whatnot. Yeah. Um but I actually think about as someone who has been like divorced, right? And had mm-hmm. had to lean on my close friends in that moment, I I remember when I went back and watched this movie now. It's like this is actually it because there's a moment mm. where Tate Diggs on the couch like making jokes about it, yeah, and, like laughing about it. And so now Lathan's kind of in awe, like how are you not devastated? In in a way, I feel like again projecting a lot onto a flawed movie, but projecting with with my own experience that I'm bringing to this projection. Um, in a way, that's it. Where it's like I remember making jokes about this devastating thing that was happening to me, and my closest friends were like. I don't understand why you're not feeling what I'm feeling, but what they're feeling is an immense level of care for me and an immense level of concern for me that I cannot yet rise to mm. for myself, right? And so I actually, um, you know, I think people probably love the moment um, where Sonal Lathan and Tay Diggs finally cash in on the, on the sexual tension and all that. But I actually think the moment right before that is more interesting. Yeah, I I found, like, I appreciate what you're saying because, like, I, I hadn't sort of thought of it from that perspective. I thought, like, there was, one, the problem with that that scene to me and the, the, you know, the the showing up at the restaurant and catching her cheating, um, and then the next scene was, like, okay, here's someone who's clearly not processing whatsoever and is, like, then directing his frustration and into like uh his sexual attraction to uh his best friend and not dealing with the emotions of like having just caught his wife cheating on him but oh, then, yeah, definitely. Definitely. But, yeah de- like definitely that but then it's also that like we're we're supposed to cheer in this moment that he's turning Dre into exactly the same thing that he's leaving right now, right? Like, she's engaged. Yeah, yeah. And there's no thought to this. There's no thought given to this that, like, his heartbreak, right? Like, he's so consumed by his own heartbreak and emotions that he's not considering whether or not, like, in that moment, it's the right thing for her. Right. Yeah, which, I mean... One other trope that is, you know, the selfish, the kind of selfish man trope mm-hmm. uh, in the film, which you get, you know, where, where Dre's like acting on that attraction to Sydney. And so, yeah, I don't really cheer that. I will say the scene that comes after they've consummated their little tensions and whatever yeah. is very funny. I yes. think it's actually one of the funniest scenes in the film. Oh, it's in, in a film that's like not. It's subtly funny because I think that people there's that you know in the movie there's some very active on its face humor with like the Ren and Ten shit, mm-hmm. uh, the rapid 
the rapid Dalmatians, which as I say it now, it's funny. It's like, but I actually think there's like some small, subtle humor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really comes to life in the like post, like post sex, awkward, still in bed thing, which I, as someone who like to, to be candid, has never had a sexual encounter with one of my close friends. Mm. Uh, that scene, not that I've ever wanted to, but that scene has absolutely scared me out of the world. <laughs> I actually do imagine, I imagine that that is what it would be like. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's not something that I think you, I, I, it seems horrifying. Even talking about it now, my palms are sore. Because <laughs> um, it, it's funny, but also a little horrifying. Yeah. In, in part because. I'm doing that self evaluation, like, because yeah. <laughs> I'm so, and I, 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 you know, I don't want to speak universally. I'm sure there are people who are lifelong friends who could experience that and handle it in a way that is much smoother than than it's portrayed in the film. But I'm like an anxious person. I am like an over communicator, mm-hmm. uh, and so when I see that in the film, I'm like, oh, that is what it would be like for me, without question. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because it's also the crossing of a threshold that one could not uncross in, in their, mm-hmm. in their sense, in what they were taught in, in like what we knew about Sid and Dre. Yeah. Um, because this wasn't like a thing where it was like, we'll do this and then go back to our lives. Which yeah. Of course that, that happens and can happen. But what we were to understand by the time they get to that point is that there's a threshold cross that they aren't going to be able to, to uncross. And it doesn't happen, it happens at a point in their lives where they're sort of making these kinds of decisions, right? About future, about who you, who they want to be, who they want to be with, who they want to share their lives with. Um, it's not as if it was like, oh yeah, this was like a 20 something hookup kind of deal or early 20 yeah. somethings. Cause it shocked me at some point there, uh, so now Lathan's uh, Dre character, she said, we're almost 30. And I was like, wait, what? How old? <laughs> I don't know how old Sonal Lathan actually was when that movie came out. I mean, Sonal Lathan, uh, to be clear, you know, it today. I mean, yeah. Looks, you know, she could be like, I'm 30, and I would be like, got it. Yeah, there. of course. Of um, course. <laughs> to be honest, Tay Diggs, too. I mean, both of them aging phenomenally. Absolutely. Like, I think Tay Diggs is like 50, and if he rolled up and said, yeah, I'm like a couple years younger than you, I'd be like, yeah, of course you are. You you have to be. <laughs> <laughs> no. like, I think if I had to guess, I, I think when Brown Sugar came out, Sonal Lathan was maybe actually 30, or close to it. Yeah, I think they're both around 30 at that time. It's actually, in a way, because I watched this in Love and Basketball kind of back-to-back, it was alarming to me because those movies came out, I want to say, like a year or two within, yeah. within a year or two ago. It is alarming to me that I actually, genuinely, kind of believe Sonal Lathan as a college student, <laughs> high school student and college student, and also as a like 30-year-old professional in the yeah. music industry. Uh, it's called range. Yeah, you know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like there was a point where like Gabrielle Union Oh, absolutely. The, the magical Negro in the teen films. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was mm-hmm. like the magical high school Negro. For years. For, yeah, for like multiple films. And I was kind of like, I think, I believe this actually. She looks more like in high school than some of these other like, white, <laughs> teen, these white so-called teenagers. So uh, we got that on our side, I guess. But, <laughs> but it, I think because of where we 
meet Sid and Dre in their lives, that's the other thing where it's like they are, like you said, I mean, they're at a point where we understand them to be making capital B big life decisions mm-hmm. about not just what's working, but like actually the entire movie revolves around like what is not working. That's a function of this kind of movie, right? Where it's like the friends, lifelong friends hurtling towards each other. And we know what's going to happen. And the only question is, how do they get there? The premise must be set. There must be a premise set down that revolves entirely around first, what is not working mm-hmm. and an understanding of what is not working so yeah. that when they inevitably fall into each other, we, the watcher, can say, well, there's some justification here because these things aren't working. I mean, even when we see Sid with her fiancé in the moments before that, and this isn't justifying anyone listening to this, I'm not justifying, like, cheat on your fiancé. Don't cheat on your fiancé and say that I was with her. Yeah, don't do uh, that. <laughs> but I'm saying the, the way the movie presents that relationship to us, we are to understand her as unfulfilled. Yes. Which, like, that's, I mean, that... This movie's like trope on top of trope on top of trope because that's obviously another trope when it comes to like, sure. we have to justify the exit by making the architecture seem unappealing. Uh, and that is so much of what this movie's propulsive nature is. Mm-hmm. Like, how do we justify this end result by presenting a world where these two are unsatisfied and they're the only answer for their satisfaction and everyone can see it except them. Yeah, but I guess that's where I'm like, but they make the choice of these other incredibly selfish people, right? Like, they, and they do it very quickly. And that's, I mean, obviously that's just like, filmmaking in terms of like the tropes of rom-coms like in in order to to get this story moving but it's like yeah you made you made the choice dre to marry this woman after a few months who doesn't know you at all and then is resentful of someone else knowing you intimately uh that you know who doesn't share your values who doesn't share any any of your interests it seems who like you're like yeah i haven't had one of these hot dogs in like since I was a little kid and now, you know, I'd never get to have this. And it's like, well, why are you marrying this person that you feel like is like an obstacle to that, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I think that's where we, we sort of like, they're playing then again with the metaphor, right? Like the whole idea is that this relationship or Dre specifically is supposed to be representative of hip hop and hip hop losing its way. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, that's, you know, the extended metaphor is a little heavy-handed uh, <laughs> throughout the film. Um, and I'm, not, I'm someone who doesn't mind an extended metaphor, but like, and I think I loved it back then because this idea of the hovering question of when did you fall in love with hip-hop, right? Mm-hmm. Is something that... Which I resisted asking you at the top of <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> but it was something that I was so invested in back then, mm-hmm. right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there were whole songs about it. There were whole songs charting Absolutely. to treat to treat the relationship, one's relationship with hip-hop specifically as a love story. It's almost irresistible. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense to me that someone could see this and say, well, there's an entire extended metaphor here about how a relationship of two people steeped in hip-hop needs to be both a love story and Dre 
uh, Dre is hip hop to mm-hmm. Sid, right? Or although it, it's never entirely clear if she is hip hop to him, but but he is definitely hip hop to her, and he is he is sold out in more ways than one, mm-hmm. right? Like we, he is sold out in her eyes from a relationship standpoint, from a career standpoint. He's not who he was, and she is the she is the thing that can bring him back down to earth. So in a way, she is kind of the underground sound pulling him back away from the mainstream, mm-hmm. right? It's like when, you know, there are hip-hop artists who who make their, their big hits. There was that stretch, you know, in the 90s and early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, where, like, everyone was working with Diddy or Bad Boy. Mm-hmm. You know, like, Mike Geronimo had a song with Diddy. Yep. These folks who were like underground, underground, pulling, trying to get kind of catch on to that wave, and then they they'd eventually return to the, the the sound they were comfortable with, the sound they understood, the sound they knew, and so we're we're to understand Sid as divorcing Dre from his shiny suit era, so to speak. When did you fall in love with hip hop? When I heard Kango Crew and Get Fresh Crew. Well, I don't think you understood the question, so I'm going to ask you again. Sid, when did you fall in love with hip-hop? Which is interesting, just given who the character that she is actually in the film, right? Like, And, right. and I don't mean that in terms of like her personality. I mean, what she does. Like, she's writing for the Los Angeles Times. She becomes editor of Double XL. Like, she's firmly entrenched in the mainstream, right? Like, she is determining what the, the what the sounds and, like, what the criticism looks like of the genre. And she's supposed to be doing it from this pure perspective. And I think that's, like, the idea is that that's what's attractive and that's why she has, is able to rise is because she keeps it real enough. But she also says, like, look, Dre, we all sell out to some extent. Yeah. And I thought XXL was just a funny choice. I mean, I will say that XXL, we're thinking about XXL in 2002, 2001, 2002, mm-hmm. and not XXL now. Now, granted, XXL, the source by then, were far more indebted to and beholden to mainstream taste making than they might have been in their earlier days um you know xxl especially because xxl came along a bit later Mm -hmm. i think already had um a sort of investment in the mainstream so that is funny only because they both knew they were fighting against a larger machinery of of mainstream hip-hop but we're seeing we see Dre have to do it in so much more egregious ways, almost comical ways. I mean, again with the Ren and Tan shit, you know, um, <laughs> which is like such it's such parody to the point of ridiculousness that I was just like, when when did this happen? Within like when was this movement happening in hip hop? Yeah, like I don't remember this. <laughs> I feel like, and then he runs into you know. Yassine Bey, the cab driver. Mm-hmm. And this is another element of the film that I think is interesting because he actually plays the, I don't know if one, I don't know if, I mean, by pure definition, one, a Negro cannot be a magical Negro if there if there's a film that centers on other Negroes. Uh, but, you know, Bay is kind of the, he is the, the quote unquote 
magic guy mm-hmm. uh, that steers more than almost more than Sid that steers Dre back to this real hip hop mm-hmm. kind of aesthetic where you know there's that great scene where where he has him clean the cab. He has Dre clean the cab. Yeah. He's like, well, you're not Gully. <laughs> Dre's all like, I'll become I'm Gully. gully. I'm real Gully. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, come on. You know? <laughs> right. Gully in your turtleneck. You're real Gully, bro. Yeah. But that's the thing, right? Is that we are to understand Dre as someone who simply needed to be challenged by people he respected mm-hmm. because he was adored by people he didn't respect. Mm. And I actually think that is something that has steered me personally towards making decisions both good and bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. The craving, I mean, not necessarily, not as much now as a slightly more secure person who's gone to a bit of therapy, but I mean, it's, you know, the adoration of, to, to be under, to understand yourself as being adored by people you're not sure you respect or want adoration from is to, in some way, at least in some cases, steer you towards an immense craving for respect from the people you do want to be respected by. Mm. And that's actually, I think, more of a vehicle of this movie than this trope of men and women being friends is, like, Sid, I mean, Dre really just wanted Sid to respect him. Mm. Like, there are parts of the movie where you can tell that he's very much wounded by the fact that she doesn't believe him to be who he was. Mm-hmm. And in part because he knows he's not who he is. And so this cabbie thing, you know, the rap, the rapping cab driver, uh, that is a way I think that the movie uses another character to almost steer him towards that desire. Mm. There's also like a, a great Queen Latifah guest turn, supporting actor turn. She's amazing in this. Yeah, I mean, it must be said. And I've been thinking about this because Latifah is, uh, you know, when it comes, I just think we're going to have to hit a point, and now it's maybe not the time because it's funny because the movie I was going to pick was was either Set It Off or Dead Presidents. Mm. And Set It Off would have offered me an opportunity to maybe go a little bit longer on Latifah, but I think we're just going to have to hit a point where she's, I mean, she's just had such a stellar career that is amazing to me because no one at this point, or very rarely, people talk about her albums and her first three albums are just right outstanding particularly first album third album but right. the second one is also very good and i think that that is just a testament i would i would venture to say within her first three albums there is at least one classic i think all hail the queen is a classic album oh, i think black rain is close to a classic album and I just can't think of many rappers. And some of this is, you know, gender dismissals and all that. But I think another part of it is because she's done so much for so long and done it all so well. Right. That, like, the fact that she dropped the cla- one of the classic debut albums in rap history is almost an afterthought. Not to me, but I think to many it's an afterthought. I mean, I, I think there's also a function of her sort of moving on from it, but the reason that she could is because she possessed all these other talents. Yeah. Like she, she sort of is, is in the camp of of like, no, I already earned my respect here. And now I'm committing myself to a different craft and earning my respect there. And it's incredible to, to, it's incredible how 
underappreciated she it feels like she is right because it's it's almost like then she issues a reminder every now and then right like that that verse on that rhapsody joint oh yeah was like oh, oh shit yeah. latifah still got bars right she's just she's so immensely talented and i i actually i did not forget that she was in brown sugar but in my head um she had only had like a small role Mm. You know, I thought she was in and out, but she was really present. Also, like, just, you know, one of her real skills is that whenever in film, whenever she's on screen, she's really on screen. I mean, she's the one. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, yeah. This is, and I know I didn't pick Set It Off, but like, it must be said that Set It Off, she was alongside very talented women. Absolutely. I mean, like, immensely talented women. Every time she was on screen, she, like, you know, she was it. She was the one, you know? And, like, Vivica Fox is no slouch, you know? Like, this is, Set It Off had a lot of talent on the, you know, in the lineup. You know, like, Blair Underwood, Kimberly Elise, like, Jada Pinkett, these people can act. Mm-hmm. And Latifah was, was still pretty new to film at that point. And, and she was just better than everybody. And this is where I th- I I'm thinking of this sort of gendered response to this because like what you're describing is someone oozing immense charm and we talk about that with Will Smith we don't talk about it with Queen Latifah. Yeah. Who I actually think has been in not to stir up anything but I, I think she's been she's better as an actor. She's better. She's better <laughs> but like she's She's been in things that I feel like endure. Like, I think one could say, and I would actually not argue with this, Living Single to me has endured incredibly, held mm-hmm. up really well. But I also think Fresh Prince Bel-Air has. I yeah. Now, like, no, certainly. We could, we could, like, split hairs on which one is held up better. And, but I, for me, it's, like, a pretty minuscule disparity. Like, I think they both held up well. I do think that Living Single has held up phenomenal. But films, I think there are queen, there are films that she's been in that I just enjoy more. Yeah, uh, I think Will Will knows how to show up to be a movie star, and the only reason that he's allowed that is because of the the gender nature of like what a movie star looks like, or right. particularly looked like in the mid to late nineties, and like you know you're tall, handsome, all of that stuff, and like he had the opportunity to shine in particular roles. And right. they they suited his his talents, which are show up and be goofy, right, and like smile real big and do all of that. And I'm not trying to say that he's like terrible, but he's not great actor. Latifah actually shows up, and it, and it's like, okay, here's someone one who can steal scenes from other talented actors, and then also hold your attention as the star if you give her the room to do it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I love her. And there's that great, there's a great, like, side thing, you know, where where her and Yassine Bey's characters are, like, <laughs> kind of, you know, he's, like, got a little crush on her or whatever. That, to me, that's, like, a very, that's another part of the movie that's, like, not that, laugh out loud funny, but yeah. funny in a way that's tender. I, that, I think what I love about this movie is so much of the humor that is kind of not physical and up against the screen mm-hmm. uh, is really tender. Yeah. In a way that the wood, I mean, another Tate Diggs movie, and I think another, didn't Rick direct that as well? Yeah. I think, yeah. Um, the humor in the wood is also, has that kind of 
real underlying tenderness to it. Mm. Uh, you want anything? Coffee? Uh, nah. Vodka? I wanted them pork chops. I told you we should have stayed. How can you joke about this? Because I would be flipping out. <laughs> See, I do not know. I guess I'll break down later. You know what, though? I, I, I'm glad I know now. I guess I always knew deep down inside that we weren't meant to be together. Is there, there's that whole slate of like late 90s, early aughts, like black film that feels like it's made in response to the early 90s. Like there was a panic yeah. about like yeah. how, how much too, there was too much like hood gangster films. And then we like moved to some black bourgeois films, like yeah. black middle class representation. And it, it was like, you know, and I'm not knocking those films. It's just like there's just a cluster of them that. You know, if you don't revisit, they can kind of run together in a way. Yeah. I would also like to point out that the Brown Sugar soundtrack mm. is great yes. and has a lot of, or a decent amount of, early Kanye West production. Yep. Um, which I did not know. Because there's that series of songs called Brown Sugar mm-hmm. on it, and I think Kanye produced all of them. Um, one of them, if I believe, I'm, if I'm right, with assistance from like Scott Storch, which yes. is kind of funny. Yes. Um, but it's a, it's an incredible soundtrack. Like truly, I have I made this playlist of, of black movie soundtracks, and I think that something really happened from like. 93 to 2002 where I think the form was just really figured out. The black movie soundtrack mm. form was really figured out. This balance mm. of songs that both sunk really well into the architecture of the film mm-hmm. but also just sounded good on a standalone album um, is just really it, it really got figured out. I mean I think about Love of My Life that song which mm-hmm. uh is a song that sounds good on the radio. It sounds good on the album, but the way it embedded itself into that film, absolutely singular. Yeah, and then that mix of sort of like the new plus like paying homage to the old school with all oh, the yeah. different, yeah. I mean, there's soundtracks that like, and again, this is a different film, but since we're just here having a conversation about movies at this point, yeah. I mean, the Wait in the Exhale soundtrack is such mm. a testament to like mm-hmm. generational, you know, there's, on the Wade Maxwell soundtrack, if I'm remembering the track list correctly, you get a Brandy song. Brandy, yeah. who was maybe 17 at the time, 16, 17, right next to an Aretha song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this, mm-hmm. like, Babyface really strung together this lineage of Black women at different parts and stages of their careers, just singing songs together. Yeah. Or singing songs that were next to each other's songs. I just, I think the black movie soundtrack, particularly, I mean, always, but I think particularly in that decade from like 92 to 2002 or so, just really figured itself out in a way that was spectacular. Mm-hmm. Um, I do want to say, like, because this film comes out in 2002 and you're saying you're like 17, 18. I was like 15, 16 years old. And I think the part of the reason that like I loved it so much at that time and sort of cringe a little bit now 
is because it spoke you you you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier it spoke exactly to what my interests were because like i was consumed at that point with the idea of real hip-hop or like is hip-hop dead and all of that stuff and like now those questions just feel so outdated and like so unimportant to me about whether or not like the culture is alive and well like because it it, it, there's something that the movie speaks to in that you know the tension between Sid and Dre in certain moments where it's like is it not supposed to move forward is it not supposed to be embraced by a new generation and then bring their own experience their own sense of sound and style to it and that like but this movie encapsulates something that that felt so vital to me at that moment it also i mean i do think i mean hip-hop has had a lot of anxieties and panics around generational divide Mm -hmm. but it, it, it does seem like the one that was happening in the early 2000s was really unique i i recall it being somewhat unique because it felt like we had just kind of come out of the first wave of the hyper-commercialization of hip-hop. Mm-hmm. 98, 99. And hip-hop had had, I think, commercial appeal before that. I mean, like, we're not, I'm not, you know, you can't kid me when there's young TV raps and sure. uh, all that stuff. That All those things did still feel like they were catering to the culture in a very real way. Rap City, The Basement, all this stuff. But there still was commercial liability. But I think something that happened at the end of, you know, post- Pac and Biggie's deaths, where to draw attention away from the largely white moral panic around hip hop, there was this hyper commercialization of the genre as a fun, quote unquote, accessible medium for everyone. Mm. The democratization of, of hip hop and brand. I think we we're coming out of that a little bit. And I, I remember there being like a real panic about what is this going to mean or do for the music, the actual real music. Um, And so I do feel like Brown Sugar was a movie that dropped into that particular ecosystem and was meant to kind of pat people on the back and maybe pacify some of those anxieties and be like, well, here's a movie about real hip hop, wink, wink. Here's a big box office movie about the real shit. Which I feel like then no one could ever truly answer the question of what was the real. Well, there is no answer, right? I mean, that's the thing, I think, is that there's no... um, I mean, if there is an answer, it's varied and and convoluted. But Mm. there's certainly, like, no... I mean, it it varies from person to person. Region to region. Rapper to rapper. But also, I think, like, what's actually happening is that many of us have come to the reality that there is now the understanding of what real hip-hop is or isn't is so flawed and multitudinous that it's barely worth arguing. But I think then yeah. it seemed more binary. That, I think that's exactly where my both love and frustration for the film comes in. Like, you know, still... Like it's that nostalgic thing of like when when that question was the most important question for me to answer in my life and like in my purchasing decisions for CDs and like what I would 
of what mixtape I needed to buy from the dude that was selling them in school. Like yeah, it was, yeah. was it real hip hop? Was it going to be the thing that I'm, I'm searching for? And that now I'm just like, who cares? <laughs> yeah. I mean, some of that's just getting older, I think, right? Yeah. Some of that's just like getting to a point where, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I personally am less self-conscious about my listening choices, but when I was 18, even, and I think I was pretty not self-conscious as a teenager just because I was surrounded by people who were listening to everything. Mm-hmm. But I did know where I could pull up listening to certain things and where I couldn't. Right. You know, I would have, I would have pulled up to certain things, switching a song, you know, mm-hmm. like with my windows down, bumping one thing, and then when I turn on the clock and switch into another song that I know might play better in that area. Yeah. Um, and And so... Some of that's real, but also it's just funny that Brown Sugar as a film was supposed to be a marker of a type of authenticity um, <laughs> because it, it for all of its for all the things I still kind of am adored by with this film um, you know it, it is very much like cosplaying the characters are mm-hmm. cosplaying what now some would consider the old heads of yeah of the hip-hop realm. Yeah. Hanif, what's one lasting image that sticks with you from Brown Sugar? Um, gosh. One lasting image from Brown Sugar is... I think the scene where they're in bed together. Yeah. <laughs> after the after their first time hooking up or whatever. I think about that. I think about it all the time because it's a point of anxiety for me. For a little bit. <laughs> um, you know, I'm just not someone who ever wants to be in that particular situation. <laughs> and I remember it so vividly because I was like, oh gosh, this could be me. Mm. Because it, it's that perfect intersection of anxiety and over-communication that I often exist on. Mm-hmm. Particularly when I like someone. And I'm not even talking about like a post <laughs> a post-coital experience or whatever. <laughs> I'm talking about just like in a very real it's funny, I joke, I mean not joke, I talked about seeing Brown Sugar on a date and the nerves I felt. So it's not even, it's just, the stakes don't even have to be physical. If I like someone, yeah. if I am at all orbiting a crush on someone, I am very overcommunicative and very self-doubting in a way that really is animated by that scene. And I think about it all the time, all of the time. Mm. And it's funny because Dre, we see Dre through the film as someone who is a little uncertain mm-hmm. of his self and of himself and his motivations. But then that scene just really drives home the fact that he is just a wreck. And I think that's also kind of cool. Yeah. Because he, in his mind, is like prat, like really thrilled by what <laughs> happened. And then he very quickly comes back down to her. <laughs> and isn't that the thing? I mean, that's, you know, I feel like that has happened to me in so many different corners of my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when it's, you know, I remember. One of the last times I had a first kiss with someone I liked a lot and had wanted to kiss for a long time and being so hype about that. 
and then immediately being like, oh no, but wait, now I have to unravel whatever comes next. Mm. And that's just like a terrible one. That's to be clear, that's a terrible way to live. Uh, <laughs> but it is, it is my head. That is the constitution that I am walking through the world with. Mm. Um, but I, I it, yeah, that scene animates all my worst nightmares and my, some of my worst lived impulses. Hanif, <laughs> uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, thank you. This was a pleasure. I love talking about this movie. And I wish I could do this again and talk about Set It Off. But I recently rewatched that and had a lot of it. Thanks for listening to Open Form, a podcast from Lit Hub Radio, produced by Justin Alvarez and hosted by me, Michael Denzel Smith. Feel free to like, comment, and subscribe to Open Form wherever you get your podcasts, and or sign up for the Lit Hub newsletter to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Next week, two marriages, two affairs, one secret identity, four of the most celebrated actors of their time.